Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate all of my listeners for engaging with the Health Unchained podcast. Your comments and feedback energizes me to keep publishing episodes every other Monday. Please keep sending your guest and topic suggestions, and I'll keep working to bring you valuable conversations directly to your headphones and speakers. On today's show, we talk about how clinical research is being revolutionized by innovative technologies and better personalized data collection. Our guest, Glenn DeVries, is co-founder of Medidata, which was acquired by Dassault Systems for $6 billion in 2019. Glenn, also known as Captain Clinical on social media, has recently authored a book called The Patient Equation, The Precision Medicine Revolution in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond, where he describes how the digitization of healthcare data will create massive opportunities for personalized medicine. We discuss some of the current challenges facing our society today and share our appreciation for the great progress humanity has already made in clinical research. I really enjoyed speaking with Glenn, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Glenn DeVries, co-founder and co-CEO of Medidata, the most used platform for clinical trials around the world. Glenn has been driving Medidata's mission since the company's inception in 1999, powering smarter treatments and healthier people. Glenn has recently authored a book called The Patient Equation, which we'll talk a little bit about in the show. Glenn, thanks so much for joining. So let's get started. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. So just to kind of give the audience a quick understanding about your background, can you share a little bit about your career experience, where you're coming from? Sure. Yeah, so it was it was a long time ago. It was now like two and a half decades ago. I was, uh, I was doing cancer research at uh, Columbia Presbyterian. Um, so medical center here in New York City. And I was working on uh, an assay for prostate cancer. So the idea was, um, can we do something that helps, um, that actually what we probably call precision therapy now, but can we figure out what the right therapy is for the right patient based on how aggressive their cancer might be? And um, back then, it's still a problem now, uh, but if you select the wrong therapy, maybe you go through some kind of huge surgery and five years later you discover that even though you thought you took out the cancer maybe the patient has cancer all over their body it's metastatic and you didn't realize it at the time of the surgery itself so we were using some molecular techniques to do it i was doing all the work in my lab bench i had all these kind of assays that i was running i had a bunch of tubes of human blood um, from volunteers from our hospital and actually other people we were collaborating with behind me and uh all the data on a computer that we shared in the lab. And I, at that point, really thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in the lab, teaching biology, um, probably looking at like a couple genes and one cancer. And I was lucky enough to share my lab bench with a guy who was, if I was on the science side, he was kind of on the medicine side. He was a, a resident in the urology department. And we were both really into not quite at a professional level, like we weren't trained engineers, but we weren't just hobbyists. Like we were very interested in computers and computer science. And, uh, and we started talking about how difficult it was to run these research projects, bring all the data together, both academic projects like mine, as well as when we were collaborating at the hospital with pharmaceutical companies. And we thought, wow, maybe we can use the internet to make this easier. And that was like how my career in basic science turned into what Medidata is. 
That's really interesting. I also spent a few years in the lab as well, so I can I can feel you there. You nice. kind of don't want to stick around forever at a certain it, point, at least it, I didn't it, either. There's a certain <laughs> number of Eppendorf tubes that was kind of like my limit, and once I'd yeah. seen enough of those, I had to do something else. Yeah, I was a great pipetter. I'm sure we all were in the lab. <laughs> or we all felt that way. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's a, it's appropriate for the podcast, but before that, I worked in a, um, a lab where we did a lot of mouth pipetting. We were doing E. coli um, stuff and uh, like l- Luria broth. I think the smell of it would make me thirsty today. I probably drank so wow. much of that by accident. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. Um, well, that's really interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about kind of the company, Metadata. So what is the value proposition? As you mentioned, you want to get the data collected all together, make sure that it's um, available to the right stakeholders. But tell me more. Tell me what. So, yeah. So, yeah, the, the, I mean, Metadata's company, we can talk about different facets of it. It deals with data, it deals with people, um, it deals with kind of infrastructure. But at its core, it's what we were just talking about. We, we started the company because we were frustrated because we were researchers with what it t- took to get data together and assemble it into evidence that you could use to show that something was worthy or not worthy. Why is it so hard to prove a hypothesis correct or incorrect because of infrastructure, because of, as I did, having to take an elevator, walk across the street, take another elevator and write data down to bring it back to my computer and re-enter it. Like, just to seem crazy. So so at its core, we're a company about helping people do research better. I mean, the way we've done has changed over the years, but that's the, the... core value prop of metadata get things to patients who are waiting yeah and and it makes a lot of sense and i have a question for you did you get any resistance um from any of the customer or potential people you wanted to work with like i feel like was it adopted quickly at the start so um i i hesitate to speak in the in the only in the past tense and i do think that we're in a time of amazing innovation and people are doing awesome things um, with us and outside of us um, but there's always, I think, resistance in, in life sciences to doing things differently, even when it might be a lot better. And I actually don't think that resistance is unhealthy. Right? If, you, if you're treating a patient, if you're in medicine, you have somebody's life in your hands. If you are working in a research project and you're trying to create a diagnostic or a therapy for a rare disease, you actually might have thousands of people's lives in your hands. If you're, you know, working in vaccine development, I mean, I don't mean to use the current situation to make the point, but the fact of the matter is it does. Like you might have billions of people's lives in your hands as you think about the results of an experiment that are showing whether something is safe or effective. Um, and so I think that that resistance to doing things differently is appropriate. But also an opportunity to show evidence that it is better and it is safe and it is effective, not the therapy, but the technique. And so that's one of the things that I hope Medidata is looked at as a, a valuable partner, maybe even a leader in, is putting these ideas together and actually showing that they work, showing we can get value in terms of getting those patients things that they're waiting for. It's really interesting. I see a lot of parallels with you know, blockchain technology. So on this podcast, you know, I like to focus on these cutting edge technologies and how it's going to be impactful in the healthcare industry. And blockchain is one of those. And I think that, you know, there is a lot of resistance in the industry for using blockchain just because it's so unfamiliar and similar to how like the internet was in 1999. So it's really interesting to to hear that from you. Blockchain's kind of an, an interesting example. And actually, I'll go back to early metadata days. So Remember, we, our big idea, and again, this will kind of put the time frame in perspective, the only thing I think you could buy on Amazon at the time was books. But our thought, um, Eddie Kaguchi and I, two of the three original founders, like if you can buy a book on Amazon with your credit card, doesn't that mean that the infrastructure is ubiquitous enough, that the security is strong enough, that we should be able to deal with research data there? And the resistance was not to the idea that we should be able to make research better faster. The resistance was to this idea that the internet was an appropriate foundation for that. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of people saying, well, what, you know, what happens if the internet breaks? You know, uh, the, the, the doctor can't log in. It was like, well, the doctor's gonna get it fixed because they want to check their pro- prodigy or you know, America online email. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of an acceptance of the technology. And, and I think 
you know, blockchain's an interesting thing, and 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 uh, we can talk about it if you like. There's a, a lot of things that I feel like blockchain is super useful for. I think there's a lot of problems in healthcare that it doesn't necessarily have solutions for. Mm-hmm. It's a tool, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think when people say it's a good idea, it's a bad idea, it's useful, it's not useful. The question is, what's the what's the scenario that you're going to put it in? Is it a tool that's fit for purpose? And if people are resistant to it, then you just show with evidence why it's a great idea. And again, I've been down that road many times in terms of the now couple decade long history of metadata. How does your experience shape your understanding of clinical research innovation? How does my, my own personal experience? Mm-hmm. Industry experience as well as personal. So um, if yeah. I fast forward to today, right, one of the things that Medidata does a lot of is we, we try to remove the barriers between different kinds of data. So we'll um, help people um, who were say looking at one clinical trial, one disease, and one dimension or set of dimensions. And I have this um, uh, book coming out in dimension, The Patient Equation. It's all about looking at healthcare from a multidimensional perspective. And if you're doing a clinical trial for a particular disease, you're almost by definition looking at it from a limited set of dimensions. But shouldn't I be able to take that data and combine it with other data and look at it in different dimensions, um, look at it more broadly? And I think my my own kind of personal experience that, that got me thinking about that was, and some of this is in the book, um, but if you, if you find patients who are super engaged in their own therapy, they're not looking at their health in the dimensions that a physician who might be specializing in their disease only are looking at their health in. Not that those dimensions aren't important, they are. Like looking at what their, their tumors are like, looking at what their tumor burden is, is super important. But they might have things that they're interested in terms of quality of life, in terms of the way they can behave and the, and the way they can enjoy or contribute to society. And I think when you kind of look at some of the most exciting things that are happening in the world of research, again, it's relevant to COVID too, um, but why would we look at only, for example, cancer to create a mathematical model for how to predict and how to decide how to treat cancer. If we do that, we're almost by definition only looking at cancer research and everybody's already been diagnosed with cancer. Shouldn't we be looking at cardiology research where people don't have cancer and get diagnosed with it while we're watching them in the context of one of these research projects and we see kind of all the data that leads up to the moment of their diagnosis and vice versa. And so my experience has been again, it's 20 years of it now, more, is that people, and I do this too, they have their blinders on. They look at problems from a very limited number of dimensions when actually if you widen the aperture a little bit and you look maybe at populations more widely, if you look at individuals more widely, maybe there's more information that we can wake up from the data that's there. And to me, that's kind of a a call to action for everybody. I don't care if you're doing a single research project, you're looking at reinventing healthcare, I think that, that, again, in my experience, it's think more broadly, and that's the way to come up with new, better ideas. Right. And I think it says it in the title, too, the patient equation. And that equation is, over time, getting more complex and richer as the data starts to get collected from these individuals. And one thing I want to also mention is the book, all the royalties are donated to the Conquer Cancer. It's an American Society of Clinical Oncology. So... Check it out. Thanks for mentioning that. I mean, it's it, it's important. Look, I think we're really lucky at, uh, at Medidata. I always say this to people, and I know that a lot of people, I'm sure, listening to our conversation feel this way. If you can leave the world a better place than you found it, um, and you can do it in a way that is also creating, I think, in a good way, in a way that creates innovation, a commercial opportunity, you're really lucky. And those of us who get to work in parts of healthcare and parts of life sciences, and we have that. And so I think the more you can give back to the community and give back to the patients who are in need, the, obviously the better. So. Right. And I totally appreciate that. And I think uh, you know, my audience would as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about COVID-19 and some trends that you're seeing with clinical trials and studies. I know there's like dozens of probably hundreds of studies going on right now, uh, vaccine related, medication related. Um, can you share some lessons or some things you've learned? Yeah, so so there are definitely tons of things that we're working on. Plenty uh, of them that are vaccine related, uh, new new therapy, or maybe repurposed therapy related. Um, obviously, we are all 
waiting with with bated breath um, for those to find things that are safe and effective and valuable for patients to use. I actually think, um, in addition to looking at them as a as a facet of how we deal with this pandemic, there's another interesting question, which is what is the bigger set of data? And I'll go right back to opening the aperture um, that we can use to understand the nature of the disease. So. Uh, by example, a friend of mine, uh, Rebecca Doerge, she's the uh, Dean of the Mellon College of Science at Carnegie Mellon, full disclosure, my alma mater. And she sent me this really interesting uh, article, a pandemic article, and it was about mask wearing, and it was a couple months ago, it was coughing into your sleeve, and it was talking about how long it's gonna take to get all the data together to really understand the pandemic, not just from a prospective way, but Retrospectively, what does it mean if you were exposed to the virus? What does it mean if you recovered in terms of your your longer care um, issues from a from a health perspective? But it wasn't about COVID nineteen. Mm. It was an article that was from a hundred years ago, and it was about Spanish flu. And I just had this thought, and I'm sure it's why she sent it to me. It's like wow, like a dec a century later, we still, even though we've got all this connectivity. Right, we've got a, we've got our blockchains, we've got our metadatas, we've got all this stuff. We haven't really put ourselves in a position where we can think globally about the spread of an infectious agent that's going to affect us all in a more effective way than we could right after World War One. And so I think that's kind of a, an interesting thing to think about in terms of what can we be doing differently, what should we be doing differently, and. If I can just kind of go down a little bit of a tangent for a sec, like the whole world's going to be going to be sicker because of this, right? Uh, how many people missed their doctor visits and didn't get new things diagnosed? How many people didn't get their chronic diseases treated and figure out how to adjust their medication? How many people, many are friends of mine, couldn't go get their cancer therapy because they couldn't go to a medical center? And so, if you think about the fact that all therapeutic areas, all people are suffering in dimensions beyond what's caused by the virus and, and COVID-19 in and of itself. So I still think like, well, shouldn't we be looking at data more broadly? Shouldn't we be looking at what's happening to patients? Just like my cancer example, why shouldn't we be looking at what's happening from a COVID-19 perspective to cancer patients, to cardiology patients? And we could, if we could assemble all that data, if we could share it, I'm not saying that's easy. Um, but again, this is kind of what's in the patient equation. If we can think about infrastructure and techniques to do that, can we really move the needle for societal human health? Can we help individuals more? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think that's a pretty exciting opportunity. Yeah, and I think about that a lot, actually. The last few months, you know, people aren't able to get to their doctors. But another thing is people are isolated as well. So mental health is becoming a huge issue with a lot of uh, patients and, and just people in general. Mental health is a obviously a thing in and of itself. But I think it's very easy to um, forget a little bit that it's connected to a lot of other things that you would think of as more biological. Mm. You know, the, the, our, our cognition, our behavior is deeply linked to what we think about from a physical health state perspective. It's connected to our blood chemistry. Um, it's connected to what genes are turned on and off because of, of things that are released in your brain as you're thinking. And so I do think that that's a huge problem we're going to have to deal with. I also think it's relevant in terms of thinking about other diseases, too. So, again, that's more of this aperture opening that we, we need to do. When we do that, I think we'll do a better job of dealing with the mental health issues as well as what you might think of as outside of that. Totally agree. How can we develop a healthcare system that aligns with the promise of precision medicine? So I, I think... Not to get too businessy about it, but I think incentives are a really interesting thing to, to think about. Um, again, let me take a step back. So, so when we say precision medicine, right, we want to give the best treatment to an individual at the most appropriate time. I think that, that, sounds, that sounds great. That's the way I want to be treated, right? Um, but what that means is that we have to think about a much smaller set of people when we think about treatments. Right. We used to think very broadly, like, let's develop a drug for everybody who has high blood pressure or high cholesterol. No, this is this is how do I figure out based on somebody's genes, based on somebody's 
very precise phenotype, not just genotype, but the right therapy is for them. So the number of patients who are going to benefit from that therapy, the number of patients you can find to test a therapeutic idea and a research project and prove that it works gets smaller mathematically the more precise you are. So that's why I say incentives are important. We have to think of ways to make not just research um, and the process of creating new medicines more efficient, but we need to make sure that the people who can do that work are motivated to do it. Um, and I, I do think that's happening, but it's kind of a, a reinvention of, of at least life sciences. And like I was just making fun of people who put their blinders on and look at things too narrowly. I wake up in the morning, I think about life sciences. I wear my life sciences blinders all day long. Um, but I do think that healthcare is performed with tools. They're drugs, they're apps, they're medical devices. The life scientist's job is to make the next generation of tools always. And so if you think about precision medicine, you think about precision tools, I feel like what we need to do is create an incentive system where the device companies, the pharma companies, the, the digital therapy companies making apps all are motivated to create things that frankly have smaller markets but create more value. Does that make sense? It does. I want to talk more about like the incentives um, idea. I think you're right. We need to make sure we're incentivizing the right stakeholders to do, you know, to sh really share the data. I think the, the issue is one, does the patient or does the organization that has the data, do they want to share the data with others? Um, what are some reasons they wouldn't want to? At the risk of, of sounding like I'm, I'm pointing some type of accusatory finger at people, which I really am not. I don't think there was infrastructure to do things um, differently in the past. But if you, are, if you are wearing those very narrow blinders and your job is to prove that a particular therapy is safe and effective for a very narrow group of patients, then you might be missing opportunities to take that therapy and apply it to a different problem. If you are free to look at a mechanism that could have benefit for some group of people, and you're thinking about it more in that, you know, what's the toolkit? I'm the physician. What can I add to CART to figure out a course of therapy for somebody? And your job is just to make tools that work when they're added to that shopping cart. I think that's a different kind of system, and, and that's when data sharing becomes super exciting. Um, there's a guy, uh, you know, I, there's some stuff in the book about him, uh, David Fagenbaum, who uh, has a rare disease, Castleman disease. He, uh, he has a book out um, from, I guess, last year called Chasing My Cure, and he was a medical student, got diagnosed with this horrible rare disease. It's an autoimmune disease, and through his own a progression of being an amazing physician scientist, but he figured out how to control his condition with something that was put on the market for people with kidney transplants. Right? So if you think about the mechanisms in our bodies, right, you start with DNA and it gets transcribed and there's systems in cells and organs and our whole body, all the things that we can turn knobs on, all the levers that we can pull, they're not typically there for one single purpose. They're there in a very complex system that represents us as, as whole individuals. I think if we can incentivize people to create great levers, to create ways to turn those knobs effectively, then you start to create an environment where people can combine those things. People can turn multiple knobs. And I, I just think it's a very different approach to healthcare than this univariate idea of, there's a big problem with high cholesterol. Let's make a drug to fix that. Right? It, mm -hmm. And I don't have all the answers for how to do that, but I, I do feel like the future of healthcare is going to be defined by how much does a, a person, a physician, an institution, a life sciences company contribute to patient value, and let's compensate them based on that contribution in the eyes of the whole, not just a single dimension like we were talking about before. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, you know, I know that metadata might not be super into blockchain, at least not at this time, but, um, you know, you talk about incentives and how do we compensate, you know, different stakeholders appropriately. Now I'm thinking, you know, there's ways to do it, technically speaking, with a blockchain system. H have you heard of 
these organizations like Pharma Ledger and Melody, that they're doing, you know, data sharing consortiums. Um, what do you think about the, their approach? So I, I, I don't think I, I know enough about their approach to, to have an you know, opinion of like endorsement or discounting it. Um, I do think, I, I feel passionately, I think it's pretty clear in the work that we do, that data sharing is super important. Mm -hmm. um, data sharing in a way that um, preserves the right privacy and consent of patients, obviously, whose data is put into that pool. One thing I, I feel like, I, I kind of alluded to this before, I'm not sure if blockchain really on its own solves, is when you share data, making sure that you're sharing it in a way that's actionable, that can produce responsible, reliable, scientific differences in the way we predict who's gonna benefit from what. And data standardization, or at least homogenization, mm. so that information can be generated from data from lots of different sources, is a problem that I feel like needs to be solved the same way I can only assume that the transparency and open access to the data that blockchain is presumably providing is also a piece of, but we gotta figure out how to turn this data into something that we can we can use to generate evidence. And that's hard. Like, uh, again, is my own experience. If you look inside a single pharmaceutical company at two clinical trials in adjacent or maybe even the same therapeutic area, they might not have been designed to layer the data on top of each other in a, in a tidy way. If you look at um, choosing a therapy um, in, in uh, uh, an unfortunate way, but put out there, like if you want to look at COVID-19, mm -hmm. I bet a lot of medical charts, let's say all medical charts were magically in blockchain. I bet a lot of them don't have data depth it's not found in medical charts. So if we want to look at all this magically assembled blockchain data and figure out who got treated by what, we can probably find that because the prescription's going to be in there if the data can be lined up. But if we want to find out how long that patient survived and did they get out of the hospital, that might not be transparent. So the data quality is something that and again, blockchain in, in the healthcare world outside of research is well outside of my expertise. But at least the standardization, the consistency is something that in research we've been focusing on at, at Medidata. And I think, I think we can make that work and, and hopefully there'll be other scenarios, again, that are helped by things like blockchain outside of it. Yeah, and I think you're totally right about getting the data interoperability working properly so that you can um, be able to share you know, the same file types or file formats um, with the different organizations. Do you think that government regulation is doing a good job or what would you say like where can we improve in terms of data standards on a regulatory level that's an interesting question I'm not, I'm not convinced that a mandated not that this exists at least to my knowledge but some kind of mandated universal data standard is really the answer um you know, as soon as you decide to standardize data you have just put those blinders on that I was talking about because you've decided what's important, what's not important, and how you're going to measure the things that presumably are important. So I think um, it's almost like academic freedom at a university, like the, the ability for somebody who is doing research to decide that there are new dimensions that matter, I think is going to enhance innovation. And as soon as we put a ceiling on that, that's bad. That said, I think I'll go back to incentives. If people realize how valuable it is to stack your data on top of my data, on top of a hundred other people's data, then we'll start to create ways to maybe not even have a single data standard, but have at least consistency in the way data is shared in a way that makes it easy to stack up. When I say stack up, I mean, you know, we can create a table of it that we can do statistics on. Mm -hmm. We can talk about AI and machine learning all day. Statistics is part of all of them, right? We need right. to stack. It all includes garbage in, garbage out. So how do we make sure there's not garbage in? As you were saying before, like high quality curated data goes in. And, and so I'll give you a very practical example. I, I bet most people, you don't even have to work in healthcare to do this. If, if you just flashed up um, pages of medical data and you didn't put any labels on it, I bet most people would be able to identify what are blood pressures. 
because they're like a really obvious set of two numbers. And yeah, there's a range, but the two numbers are related. Systolic and diastolic are always, one's always bigger than the other. Right. They're always centered around certain kind of curves. But when you start to look at other data, you know, I think actually that's where machine learning probably starts to be able to look at it and, and in the same way that it would be obvious to a person looking at a, a blood pressure, machine learning can look at a much richer set of dimensions and say, oh yeah, I know that's uh, tumor volume. And I know that these ones are in these metric units and these are in a different set of SI units and I can put them all together. Hmm. I, I think that that kind of thinking and that kind of infrastructure, the, the, the machines that do all that behind the scenes work will allow both AI approaches to figuring out great beneficial stuff and will allow people to look at data, look at a bigger denominator is just yeah. a, a human in ways that I think will be super helpful to everybody. Yeah. No, and one thing that you mentioned is garbage in, garbage out. And that's with all systems, really, even blockchain. So, you know, right. although I'm a, a blockchain enthusiast, I also understand that garbage in, garbage out, it's going to impact the blockchain even more because in most cases or in many cases the ledger is immutable too so there's like a lot of right but you can put something in that says don't look at record version a look at record version b yeah you can amend it that's true that's true but yeah right but you don't want to process a million amendments and worry about state people i think are very not dismissive of i I don't I, i think it's just that people don't appreciate sometimes how important data quality is and actually, a guy who was at Medidata who was our, uh, our chief data officer. And when, when we started assembling some of our, our AI teams and capabilities, we realized that a lot of people in life sciences, and I think at the time, this is half a decade ago in healthcare, didn't really understand some of these techniques. So one of the things that we did is we quite intentionally said, well, let's find people in fintech and um, like literally rocket science in some cases, like aerospace and other industries who have figured out how to use AI. And one of the first things that, that this guy taught me was, like, if you don't have standardized high quality data, all of your predictive models are going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. And, and it took somebody to like really point that out to me and say, oh, look, I just I made a plot of all of the, the um, BMIs for patients in these clinical trials. And it looks like a normal cloud, but it gets these two little clouds on the side of it. Do you know what those are? They're mislabeled units. Hmm. And you go, oh, right, that's a really important thing to think about. And so whatever the techniques are, blockchain or no, awesome NLP, AI, machine learning algorithms or no, data curation is something that you need to have appetite for, you need to have budget for, you need to have gumption for, and if you don't do it, you're not going to get to somewhere good. That's, that's the garbage in, garbage out problem. Totally agree there. And one sort of source of sometimes bad data, sometimes good data are um, wearable devices and smart devices. And, you know, I could wear my Garmin or Fitbit or, or Apple iWatch or something. But, um, you know, if it's not collecting data properly or if I'm attaching it to my dog and having him run and I'm getting free steps or something, you know, th- there's lots of unpredictability there. So how can smart devices and wearables change the way doctors practice medicine? Yeah, so so we actually have a, a name for one of those problems um, at Medidata. We call it the device on dog, D-O-D, um, <laughs> because we think about that problem all the time. So if you look at the way data is collected by a sensor, right? There, I, I'm sure there's issues with sensor quality. I'm not like a piezoelectric expert, mm-hmm. but you know, presumably whatever is being shaken in your Apple Watch or your Garmin, whatever it is, it, it's good. that's an objective measurement. It's going to give you some measure of how much it moved around, et cetera. So now I think we're talking about data quality as related to was the source the right source? Was the, if it's a person, was the person engaged in how to wear it, how to charge it, how to manage it? And we're getting to the point that I think that's a, again, not trivial, but probably solvable problem. Hey, I, I make the point to people sometimes, um, everybody I can almost guarantee who is listening to us has a medical device on them. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that people say, no, I'm not wearing anything. 
well, you, but your phone is within a meter of you, right? And it's going to be within a meter of you all day, and you're going to charge it at night within a meter of you. And again, let's not, there's ways to do it. Well, we actually, we do stuff around this where it doesn't have to be Big Brother knowing exactly where you are, but I can get some data about how much you are moving around, maybe not exercising, but just in the world. Right. So if I can start to get that and you're incentivized, it's like the doctor who was going to fix their Internet connection because they wanted to check their email 20 years ago when we started Medidata. The patient is going to have their phone working. So now if I figure out how to, again, in a, an appropriate way from a privacy perspective, in a way that the patient understands, consents, et cetera. But if I can now bring that data in, I, I personally don't think this is all hypothesis. Um, although we have clients who are working on these ideas, I, I don't think that we're going to diagnose your your cancer from your phone alone. Right. But if we looked at your more traditional measures of disease progression, if we looked at tumor volumes, if we looked at your biochemical response to different medications, and if we were to add how much you are moving around, how much you are enjoying your life, how much you are benefiting from or contributing to society? Is it a bad hypothesis to say that we might have a better mathematical model? And I think the answer is no, it's a great hypothesis to say that we would have a better model. Right. And so I think, and by the way, if you put it on your dog, we're going to realize that you know, nobody who's 48, you know, moves around that much, even if they're healthy. And we're going to detect because we can see the patterns, just like the blood pressure curve we were talking about. We're going to see that that's an outlier. There's something wrong. That's, that's the curation and data quality. Yeah. So we find the right way to measure, we combine it with the right algorithms to ensure data quality, and then I think we wind up with better models. And so I, I, I do think that we're going to see a lot of that. Um, and the devices are, are everywhere. I, I, I don't have like a smart mattress, um, but I bet I have one in a decade. Right, yeah. <laughs> smart toilet as well, maybe. Yeah. Smart mirror, anything. Exactly. I have one of those workout mirrors. Oh, yeah? Yeah, How are they? I'm, I'm like interested in them. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. you know what? Um, I, I wasn't a huge fan until all gyms on the planet closed. And <laughs> that's <laughs> good a good point. way to, to make you motivated. I, it, you know what? That is patient engagement. It's like consumer engagement here, but it's the same thing. It's true. I, um, I like to use my Headspace app for meditation, and they recently introduced a uh, move feature. So you can like do like little workouts as well now. So, and they really are pretty good, I think. There you go. Uh, I, I don't sponsor Headspace or anything like that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't sponsor the mirror thing that I work yeah. out with. But I like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, will wearables improve patient adherence monitoring during clinical research? Um, I mean, I, I certainly think they do. Uh, so there's a guy uh, at Medidata, his name's Anthony Costello, and he he, um, he runs everything that we do kind of from a patient connectivity perspective. He's like, the, the and Medidata has been around a couple decades. The first decade was really about connecting professionals, the people who work in life sciences or doctors and nurses. The second decade, we started to really integrate the, the biggest, most important constituency in research and healthcare, the, the patients who are being treated. That's why we're doing all this work. So uh, Anthony, Anthony runs that patient connectivity thing. And he really um, opened my eyes when he started to talk about patient engagement in the context of consent. Right? So and this is research, but I think it, it's relevant to healthcare and data sharing or how you might share your data with your doctor. And, and he said to me, you know, when, when you think about giving somebody a paper document to sign that describes the clinical trial, you know, they're all going to skim through it. Um, or like one of those end user license agreements that all of us are constantly agreeing to, you know, you scroll and you click OK. But if you if you have an experience, if you have an avatar of the patient and they're watching that avatar go through the research process, they understand. And this was the key word. They understand their responsibilities mm. in the clinical trial. And when you know, he said that and I was like, Boom, I got it, right? As soon as I'm responsible, as soon as I'm a stakeholder, now I'm much more interested in, in not just my own outcomes, but, but the system as a whole. And so I just think a great patient engagement strategy to begin with is a great way to have compliance in a clinical trial, adherence in the medical protocol outside of trials, 
And it's also the foundation for getting all the sensor data we were talking about. So if, if a patient isn't responding to a medication or isn't taking it, maybe they're not charging their device. Maybe there's other ways to measure their compliance or measure their adherence that we wouldn't have had. We, we wouldn't have known they weren't taking their medication until two months later or COVID-19, eight months later, when they finally come back to the clinic and we realize their blood chemistry in no way reflects them taking the medication. Well, no, maybe we could figure that out when they're in their home, right? right. So it gives us a better feel. So I, I don't want to make it seem like this is a piece of cake and you snap your fingers and magically it all works. But I do think that wearables and sensors will make a big difference in terms of compliance. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. On August 26, 2020, in an effort to provide faster COVID-19 results, the FDA authorized an emergency use of a rapid antigen test that can only be used by authorized labs and patient care settings. To be clear, the Binax Now COVID-19 AG test card, EUA, has not been FDA cleared or approved for broad consumer use. A day after Abbott received this emergency FDA approval of its 15-minute COVID-19 test, the Department of Health and Human Services awarded it a $760 million contract to produce 150 million tests. The HHS said the test may be deployed to schools and other special needs populations. Healthcare providers using Abbott's test will swab a patient's nose, transfer the sample to a test card, and then results will become available in just 15 minutes with no instrumentation, using proven lateral flow technology with demonstrated sensitivity of 97.1% and specificity of 98.5% in clinical studies. Abbott says they will ship tens of millions of tests in September, ramping up to 50 million tests a month at the beginning of October. Abbott will offer a no-charge complimentary phone app, which allows people to display their Binax Now test results when asked by organizations where people gather, such as workplaces and schools. If test results are negative, the app will display a digital health pass via a QR code, similar to an airline boarding pass. If test results are positive, people receive a message to quarantine and talk to their doctor. As they're required to do for all COVID-19 tests, healthcare providers in all settings will be required to report positive results to the CDC and other public health authorities, regardless of whether they use the app. The digital health pass is stored in the app temporarily and expires after the time period specified by organizations that accept the app. The app's user interface is supported by a back-end digital infrastructure that is cloud-based, scalable, and secure. It's reported that it's been designed to support a very large number of users and enable access from anywhere. The app is not for contact tracing and only collects person's first and last name, email address, phone number, zip code, date of birth, and test results. Although there's no mention of decentralized ledger technology or blockchain in this application, this still sounds like a huge milestone for COVID-19 diagnostic testing. I will be keeping a close eye on the rollout of these test kits and program. You can find a link with more information in the show notes. Let me know what you think. And now back to our conversation with Glenn DeVries, co-CEO of Medidata. What is the value of collecting personal healthcare data over time? Like we have wearables at a certain capacity now, but over time, how will this all come together? All right. So uh, uh, it's kind of another spoiler alert if you read the patient equation, but um, you know the movie Gattaca? Yeah. I talk about it in the book, right? So in in that movie, um, it's a good movie. But the idea is everybody gets their genes sequenced when they're born. And based on your gene sequence, they decide whether you're going to be an, an astronaut or um, do some other kind of labor job. Right. And presumably, the better your genes are, the more likely you are to be an astronaut. Actually, the movie has a, a really good moral from a healthcare perspective, which is a character with bad genes, but extreme motivation becomes an astronaut. And I think that's kind of an illustration of the idea that I'm not suggesting your genes aren't super important, but we were all 
I know this isn't literally true in every disease, certainly not in mutations in your cancer, but we're kind of all born with genes that stay largely the same. Mm -hmm. Our phenotype, the effect of the environment around us, the continuous cycle of the way we live and how that affects our, our cells, our organs, our systems, our, our cognition, our behavior, all of that creates huge new amounts of data. So if you think about it from that perspective, the more we collect, the more we have to can't look at everything, but the more we collect and we figure out what's important, the better job we can do at figuring out what's the right thing for people right now. Right? So that, that, that's something that's beyond you know, um, any, any single aspect of healthcare, but it's that uh, aperture opening thing. I think the only way we're going to figure out what the best models are, kind of apropos to what I said before around adding activity to a cancer um, model, we need to think about ways to put all this data together, traditional and non-traditional, and that's what creates the the foundation for the next generation of healthcare thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. We're talking about a lot of this data being collected by patients uh, or for institutions or doctors or clinical trials researchers, but what about patient privacy of the data? How do, how do we secure that data? Because it's sensitive information and in the wrong yeah. hands it could be misused and abused yeah. so yeah so so i have to i have to preface my answer by saying that i am in no way an expert about data privacy or things like that um and and i think well above my pay grade there are regulatory and societal things to think about in that context but let me take a microcosm of what we're talking about in what I do feel comfortable from an expertise perspective in, which is in research. And I will try to expand that in a sec. But in research, we're looking for volunteers. Nobody gets put in a clinical trial without wanting to be in it. Um, so you are consented. Um, you know what's going to happen. And, and a lot of times patients are doing that for uh, reasons that are very personal to them. They want to have access to a new medication that may be better than what's on the market. They, they, um, they want to uh, try to change the, the arc of their lives from a length or quality perspective in a way that's otherwise unavailable. So by volunteering, I get access to those great things or hopefully great things. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that you see is that those patients also have a, a sense of altruism in doing that. Part of volunteering to be in the clinical trial is that, yes, you get access to that and your data is anonymized in a research project, but you are still contributing your data into a pool that is going to be used to make a, a conclusion about whether or not this new medicine or this device is useful for other people. And I think if you and we have a, a whole uh, team at Medidata that looks at patients specifically and patient advocacy, um, and, and it's it's an important part, this altruism of thinking about engagement in the clinical trial. I have benefit for myself and I benefit for society. So now if I, if I try to open my aperture and think about things in healthcare more broadly, I know that we need to have protections to make sure things aren't used from a discriminatory perspective, um, of course. But if there is a, if there is a, a way where patients understand that by contributing some of their data or by allowing people to use some of their broader data, that's going to be a way to get them the best therapies. I think that's something that, that a lot of patients would sign up for. They, again, they need to understand the protections. And, and frankly, we have a huge societal problem with access. You know, I, I see it again in the world of clinical trials. If you look at the demographics in clinical trials, um, and, and actually, uh, a, a year ago um, at Medidata's user group meeting, we had a whole diversity in clinical trials um, theme. You do not see a population in clinical trials that is reflective of the population at large in the world. And I think that's a little microcosm of like problems in healthcare. Again, some of them probably above my pay grade, but if you think about digital and you think about ways to allow a patient to integrate their data with systems, so it doesn't matter where I live, it doesn't matter who my physician is, but I can now get access to more precise medication. I don't think that's a miracle that solves everything, but I think that's a step along the way to making sure we can get precision medicine to broader groups from a, a socioeconomic perspective, from a geographic perspective, from a demographic perspective. 
Um, it's on the shoulders of the life sciences company designing the precision therapy or the healthcare system or the government to show the benefit to the individual and to show the protections. But if it's something that's going to improve my quality of life or longevity and I understand the protections, I think most people would say, okay. Right. So if, that, if that's not happening, like shame on those of us who aren't making that clear and making that work. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Part of it is an education problem. Um, yeah. you know, how do we inform these individuals? And then the access part is, you know, now that, I mean, everything is online, so we just need to figure out the best way to get their attention, I guess. And I don't want to start talking about Facebook ads for clinical trials, but that might be like one of the ways. I don't know. No, I think it's super important. We, we, um, so there's the elements that we can, we can move the needle from a kind of digital perspective and, and that kind of scalable engagement perspective. But you are right. Communication and education is huge. Um, uh, we work with, with uh, organizations like Lazarex, um, which creates kind of centers in communities. And maybe it's a literal community center. Maybe it's a church. There's a place where we can engage, where they can engage a community that might not be engaged. Um, actually, uh, congratulations uh, to the, the team at uh, Tu Salud, Tu Familia. It's an amazing program in the D.C. area, which is for the Latinx audience, uh, about making sure people understand what's happening in clinical research and what's accessible and what's not accessible. And, and many data supports that as well. They just got an Emmy. Um, it, I'm super yeah. happy for that. Yeah, anyway, that's, but, that's awesome. But, but, but that kind of stuff is really important. So, it, again, it's not like there's some some silver bullet that fixes all these things. Um, but you're right. You have to think about education. You have to think about distributing the information. But then you have to figure out, great, I, I, every, now everybody in, in wants to have access to this stuff. How do I get it to them? Mm -hmm. right? And if you look at the demographics in a clinical trial today, it's mostly affluent people who live next to a medical center that is highly accredited academically. Right? So we got to break that problem, too. we got to figure out how to distribute these therapies to a much broader audience. And I think technology is going to play a big role, not fix all, but play a big role in doing that. What are some of the limits of technology for clinical trials research? Um, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I, the limits change all the time. So I, I don't feel like I can come up with some line in the sand where well, we're not going to be able to do this, we're not going to be able to fix that. I mean, the, the idea that I can basically have my cardiology dimensions measured in my home almost as well, and by the way, if I'm willing to, to get some training and put some leads on myself just as well mm -hmm. as I can if I go to see a cardiologist, but instead of doing it for 10 minutes during my visit, I can do it 24 hours a day in my house. Like, that is science fiction from, from when I started in this industry, right? And, and this is my own pet theory. I have no idea if this is true. But I, that all happened because battery life was terrible. And I do remember Steve Jobs demonstrating the first iPhone and what a big deal it was. When you put it down, the screen went off to preserve battery. And when you picked it up, the screen went on. So that was why there was a motion sensor in it because they needed to preserve battery. And like all of a sudden... I think that might have led to 15 years later, like all of a sudden we can actually measure my heart rhythms at night every night. Um, but we're going to see these technologies proliferate. So whatever is the, the thing that stops us now, maybe that's not going to stop us. I, 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 complex um, infusion therapies. You have somebody with a rare disease where they have missing an enzyme. You have somebody with a, a cancer and they need to have something infused. I really feel like we're seeing um, kind of the world of medical devices and the world of molecules starting to come together. Mm -hmm. We realized, I'm not going to say thanks to COVID-19, that almost came out of my mouth because of COVID-19. Right. We realized that this idea that we can always get a patient to a clinic is not a good assumption. So do you want the drug that gets infused in the clinic only? Or do you want the drug where if you can't go to the clinic or maybe you want to go on vacation, it has a device that measures your body, measures your blood chemistry, infuses the right amount, does it without you having to be trained or messing it up. Like, I think I want that drug. And so even from the device molecule kind of meeting in the middle, I think we're just going to see huge possibilities. So you know, I, I'm not going to I'm not comfortable with a oh, technology is not going to fix this. As I said before, it's not going to fix everything, mm -hmm. um, but it's going to be a component to a lot of these things. 
Yeah, for sure. And you were kind of getting into like a Ray Kurzweil kind of possible theories. And I love Ray and all his um, work. So I think, you know, I'm also kind of like a futurist as well. Um, what impact do the big players, the big tech players like Google, Amazon, Apple, what will they have on the clinical trials industry? Yeah, I, so I think that their impact is going to be huge. They are the infrastructure, right? And I don't know that who's going to quote unquote win in different spaces or how it's all going to work. Um, and maybe it, maybe it actually doesn't matter. But the fact of the matter is there's going to be this digital fabric that people can use to connect people, that people can use to connect data. Um, I, I get my own theory. I don't have enough data to, to prove this out, but I don't even think it matters probably for a lot of diseases how your steps are measured. You know, um, I, I hear that all the time. It, it's going away a little bit, but back when we first started doing sensor studies, people would say, well, you know, how do I prove that the Fitbit steps are the same as the Apple Watch steps? Maybe I don't care. Maybe the important thing is the direction, is the number of steps increasing or decreasing, and, trend, yeah. and what's the trend in that. And so, again, maybe the exact number does matter, and we'll figure out how to normalize things from different sources, but the fact matters we're going to be able to measure all these things. We're going to be able to bring them into data sets. We're going to need people's consent. We're going to need their engagement. But it's not going to be, um, I think, unless something really awesome happens and we have this incredibly productive benevolent world government um you know okay maybe that would be great uh, uh, maybe you know i hope nobody listening to this says well let's not do that because we were talking about it but, yeah. but but right now it's it's the big tech companies and i think it, it's a reasonable theory for the future and i know there's all kinds of things we have to make sure that they don't do and take advantage of people and mm -hmm. get bad information out there but from an infrastructure perspective those are the companies that are putting the, those computers in everybody's pocket, those, the, the Bluetooth that goes to TCP IP to get all the data back to a central data set. Um, and so I, I think they're incredibly important for that future life sciences. What is metadata's roadmap for 2020 and 2021? So it has not changed um, because of what happened with the pandemic, but certain things have certainly accelerated. Um, we, we took some stuff that we were doing around patient engagement, um, that some of the ideas we talked about, and the, the same way you, we were just talking about the big tech platforms. Like you, you don't want to have like five different devices that all, one is for your calendar and one's for your to-do list and one's for your text messages. You want your phone with a bunch of apps to do all of it. So um, we, we accelerated launching something called My MediData, which is basically a single point of entry for patients for everything related to their therapy in a clinical trial and not just their therapy in a clinical trial, but most patients who go through a clinical trial will either have a great outcome and be cured or find something that manages their disease permanently or be looking for another clinical trial. And that's something that has been like a lot of underserving in the industry because clinical trials are anonymous. So well, I don't know how to help this person who didn't have a good response. But if there is a, a connection to that patient through my metadata, one of the things that we're going to do is help them find their next trial. That's beneficial to the patient. It's beneficial to the life sciences companies that are trying to find in precision therapies all these very specific patients. Um, so we, we took that and we accelerated all the timelines related to that. Uh, some of the stuff that we do around artificial intelligence and helping people identify new biomarkers, new, way to, new ways to stratus stratify patients, figure out who's really responding to different therapies and why. That's something that I think was looked at kind of as a luxury by the life sciences industry because they were looking in that siloed way. And now we, we've had this unfortunate event that has unified effectively all of humanity. And we realize that we're all kind of in this together. Let's take the blinders off. And I think that's trickling into the way people think about different diseases. So those two parts of the metadata business, um, and obviously we've been super busy, as we talked about before, with, with not just the regular research that we're doing, but COVID-19 therapies and vaccines, but really the patient connectivity and the, the different approaches to analytics and using data to generate evidence. Those are the things that have accelerated. Got it. Yeah, and there's a whole, like, another podcast we can go into, like, the vaccines and the details there. And it, will it be effective? When will they come out? Will people even want to take it but um we won't really get into that right now but i would like to know who are some of the people that have been your biggest influence 
my my biggest influences like in, in life uh, yeah I in mean, life in your career I, or yeah. in general and so one so one of the things that I, I brought up before kind of this idea that mechanisms in the body are, are reused um i i learned from uh, paul hurling who was the head of research at novartis for many years and was a member of metadata scientific advisory board and yeah i've had amazing mentors like paul um over my career i i, I do like um I, I do like education and i i think the more we can get people to think critically and to open their own apertures is important i think as, as a kid um uh, Richard Feynman, who was a, a physicist many, many years ago, was one of the people who worked in the early days of quantum physics, um, was a real uh, hero figure of mine. And he would talk about the fact that if you can't teach something to a seven-year-old, you're not ready to teach a graduate course about it. Um, and and I, I think about things like that, and, and people like that have been an influence. And then I, I've been very lucky in terms of of the people I've kind of met in my career, not just Paul, but um, the, the patient equation literally starts with the story of a, of a patient who I met who is now um, sadly deceased, but he had this engineering mindset that he brought to managing his cancer. And he literally popped up a spreadsheet when we met and he showed me his tracking of key elements of his disease and how they went up and down when he started a clinical trial or finished a clinical trial and started the next one. And so, you know, people like Jack, the Whalen, like the, those, those people really influenced me. So, um, I don't know, it, it's, it's been a combination of mentorship, people I've, I've looked at in the past who have been great scientists and, and I think great societal figures and also um, the, the inspirational individuals who get you excited about it, not just how you can serve humanity, but frankly, the way, as I think I said the phrase before, I, the, the kind of patient environment that you want to be in because we're all patients too fair yeah no thanks for sharing that um i did a little bit of research before this recording and i know uh -oh. that you want to go to space so when do you <laughs> expect to go to space um so i i don't know anything that anybody else doesn't know i, I have a virgin galactic ticket right it's the richard branson uh mm -hmm. company it was it was a, a gift to myself on my uh, 40th birthday i thought like always wanted to be an astronaut why am i not going to space i can yes. you know, we've been lucky with betty data i can do that now so um they, they've started to to literally do their test flights so hopefully they'll be flying passengers soon and uh i look forward to being one of them i, I have a couple um uh friends acquaintances who have been to space and uh i it seems to me we're talking about education that they all come back feeling very differently about the planet and about humanity and most of them have said to me like call me when you're back because we can talk about it but you won't really understand what i'm saying until you've seen it and so you know going to space you know it's kind of a, a, a super luxurious idea and it's really fun and i think rockets and planes are super cool um but i think this idea of kind of space tourism might be really good for society like, you know, imagine high school kids all over the world getting to go to space. And if if I'm right about that feeling and having it, you know, may, maybe there is that benevolent world government, you know, sometime in the future that, that manages our planet in a, a better, more responsible way. Wouldn't that be awesome? So, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty psyched. I hope it happens in the next couple of years, maybe like 2022 is my guess. Yeah, I mean, I hope it happens, too. And I think you're right. I think that. Um, that realization that we're all connected in one way or another is, is really important and almost spiritual. So yeah. I do think that you know, over time, we'll, you know, as we communicate better, get better technology, we'll get there. Um, I think we've gotten to a great point so far. Of course, people like to be pessimistic about our current situation. But, you know, compared to like 30, 40 years ago or even like centuries ago, we're, we're doing a lot better. There's less violence. Mortality rate is much lower. So there's... There's progress, everybody. <laughs> we're, li we're living a lot longer. We're a lot healthier. So it, it, you know, everybody's we'll get through their, COVID. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's got to be in, our, in their swim lane sometimes. I feel like at least in our swim lane, we're doing all right. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're moving the needle. Yeah. Uh, well, Glenn, this has been an awesome conversation. We talked about a lot. So I really appreciate your time. Um, would just like to give you the opportunity to kind of share with the audience any final takeaways, any 
ways that they can reach you? Maybe there's a blockchain startup that's interested in talking to you know metadata and seeing how they can <laughs> they can work with you. And I would love to you know help make that connection. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, so uh, yeah, you can find me on social media at Captain Clinical. It's a fictitious superhero who fights for good life sciences. And um, we, uh, I made him up at Halloween a while ago. Halloween's a, a fun thing. I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at, at Captain Clinical on social, uh, you can go to thepatientequation.com if you're interested in the book. It'll take you right to it. Um, and I just kind of as a final thought, you know, I... I I just was talking about like the planet and taking care of the planet. I will go back to something I said before. I, when we think about this transition to precision medicine, and I don't care if it's a metadata idea or one of the blockchain ideas that's about to get pitched to me, um, I think that one of the really exciting things that technology can kind of democratize is this idea that we can look at a whole, we can look at the planet, we can look at a giant population, but we can also focus on the individual. Mm -hmm. Right. This is not a zero sum game anymore. And we can make sure that then that person gets the best thing for them that matters to them. And, and that's really what still gets me excited every morning, that, that we can just change the big picture and we can change the picture for all of us as, as people. So I'll leave you with that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Glenn. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.